John 17, 20. Words of Jesus in his prayer. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Tonight, I want to speak on this theme, oneness with God. God bless you. Please be seated. Oneness with God. Uh, for the past couple weeks, uh, two Wednesdays and a Sunday, we've been talking about the oneness of God. Two Wednesday nights, Brother Calvin Fisher spoke the first Wednesday on the humanity of him, humanity of Christ, and then uh, last Wednesday on the deity of Christ, the dual nature of Jesus. And then this past Sunday, the 24th, I preached on one Lord on the oneness of God, the nature of God. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, one in number. He is one Lord. Amen? So in that context, John 17 is an amazing passage of Scripture. John 17 records the prayer of Jesus for his disciples and for all believers. Uh, there is a setting to this prayer, a context to this text. In John 13, Jesus is in an upper room with his disciples, and there is a provision of a memorial, a communion. Now, John does not write about this, but the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. It is interesting that John, as the supplement gospel, includes many things that the synoptics, that means view together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, did not discuss. Uh, in John 13 and 2, John wrote, under the inspiration of the Spirit, in case you wonder, and supper being ended. He doesn't talk about that Passover supper. He doesn't talk about that institution of a memorial of communion, but he said, in supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then in verse 4, it says, he riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. It's fascinating how the Bible is written, inspired by God. Every word in the original, God breathed, and how it fits together, and how you must take Scripture compared with Scripture to understand the whole counsel of God. Not just grab a verse here and a verse there and formulate a doctrine, but God intentionally wrote it this way so we would get a four-dimensional view of the life of Jesus Christ. After this supper, Jesus washed the disciples' feet as an example of servant leadership. And I love to talk about that passage of Scripture, but I'm not going to tonight. 20 verses. He makes some predictions about the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. And later in this discourse about the denial of Simon Peter. In John 13, 31, he begins a single discourse, a lesson uh, to these disciples 
in an upper room. It's not like the Sermon on the Mount where there are multitudes of people there. This is a rather intimate setting of he and his chosen, and Judas will leave that supper. He's already gone when Jesus is teaching this. This is just prior to his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, arise, let us be going. He goes to that place where he oft prayed in that garden of olive trees. And Gethsemane means olive press. And it's there that his will will be in finality submitted to the will of the heavenly father, the spirit that dwelt in him. And this, this long discourse goes through chapter 16. And once again, I don't have time to go through all of John, the end of 13, 14, 15, and 16. But it's significant. Paul would look back on this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three and talk about the communion supper and say that, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. So we know this is the night in which he is betrayed. Throughout this passage, this discourse, uh, Jesus talks about problems that the disciples will face. He will give them promises that they can count on. He gives them some instruction concerning their experience in John 15, that they are to bear fruit and that their fruit would remain. He speaks about their enemies, the foes of the disciples, that just like the world hated him, the world will hate them. He gives them instructions concerning the future. And he speaks about the role of the Holy Ghost in their lives, the ministry of the Spirit, and the result of the resurrection. In John 16, 33, he gives a conclusion. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That's the last bookend of this discourse. It's interesting that John 14, 1, not the very beginning, but the beginning of that John 14, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So it's pretty interesting that toward the beginning of this discourse, he said, don't be shook up. Let not your heart be troubled. At the end of it, he says, you're in this world, you're gonna have trouble. But in me, you're going to have peace. And be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So it's an overriding theme in this passage for them to understand the context of, of the ministry they're going to have as they launch from this to the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the return of the Holy Ghost, the coming of the Spirit, and the beginning of the book of Acts, the church dispensation. But let's look at this prayer of Jesus. Uh, this is the Lord's Prayer. Now, I know the Lord's Prayer is our Father which art in heaven, and that's the model prayer when they said, teach us to pray, and he teaches them somewhat of a pattern of prayer. But this is a literal prayer of Jesus Christ uh, that he prays in John 17. The Bible said he spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. He prays for the disciples. He prays for all believers, those who are not in the room that day. Now, I want to give a oneness understanding of the prayer of John 17. 
We've been talking about the nature of God. But it is important for Oneness Pentecostals to not be afraid to talk about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, according to the flesh. Again, Brother Calvin Fisher spoke about the humanity of Jesus Christ. If he was not fully human, he could not be an empathetic high priest who is easily touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He cannot feel our infirmities if he did not experience all the troubles, the vicissitudes of life. So the nature of Jesus Christ, he is the son of God according to the flesh. So I know you'll be shocked, but we're gonna go through lots of verses of scripture tonight. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of Christ, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Everybody please say, according to the flesh. Now I'm gonna get to oneness with God, but I wanna reinforce oneness of God. Verse four, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Verse three, He's made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Verse four, he's the son of God with power, the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. John 1 and 14 says that he is the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. He has a beginning in Bethlehem. He exists only in the mind of God, that logos, the expression of God, in concept, that's how he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's how Philippians 2 can speak that in being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was God, and he has his beginning in Bethlehem. Luke 1.30, this angel comes to Mary and says, you have found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb. This word conceive is very important. Mary, you're going to be expecting a baby just like every other woman that's ever had a baby is conceiving a baby except there's no human man involved. You will bring forth a son. You'll call his name Jesus. Brother Calvin spoke about this. There's a false doctrine called the divine flesh doctrine that teaches that Mary was basically an incubator, that all she did was house the DNA of God and that she had contributing nothing. But he is the son of God. He's the son of man. He is the man, Christ Jesus. Luke 135, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the son of God. Romans 8 and 3 said he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. I've already said this, but he was tempted in all points, but he did not have a sin nature. He was attacked from the outside, but he did not have the weakness of the flesh of a sin nature on the inside. Adam was created innocent, but with a, you know, a free will. 
and he chose to sin. Jesus Christ was created with a free will, but not a sin nature, and chose to be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and refused sin and the temptations of, 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 that the Bible speaks about, Luke 4, and uh, chose to be obedient. There's so many scriptures about this. Amen. He did not take on the nature of angels. Hebrews 2 and 16. I'm talking about the humanity of Jesus Christ because John 17 is about the man Christ Jesus praying an intercessory prayer, praying for the disciples. Hebrews 2, 16. All these verses are not on the screen. Uh, for verily took not on him the nature of angels. He's made a little lower than the angels. But he took on him the seed of Abraham took upon himself humanity. And as a man, Jesus Christ submitted to the will of the Father, the spirit that dwelt in him and the God who created the universe. And when we say Father in reference to God, we recognize that it means the eternal spirit of God. And when we say Son, it refers to the man, Christ Jesus. A man with a human will submitted to the will of the Father. Now, if Jesus would have been co-equal with the Father, he would not have prayed to an equal, and he would not have submitted to an equal. But as a man, he submitted his human will to the will of God. John 17, 1 begins this prayer. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Father, son, spirit, flesh. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. He has an assignment. He has come in the flesh. He was born to die, right? And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the, which, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, God, Almighty God, does not live in time. He lives above time. He is not limited to time as we are. One of the great revelations, not revelations, but I use that word loosely, that I've ever received is that God created time and he uses it to fulfill his will because we're always worried about time, but God is not. Abraham is worried about time. The clock is ticking. He's getting older, but God is not worried about time. He uses time to fulfill his will. And God knows the future with certainty, and he can foreordain a plan with certainty. He can act on a future event because he knows that it will happen. He can regard things that do not exist as though they do. Romans chapter 4 verse 17 says this, that God who quickens the dead, and he calls those things which are not as though they were. He speaks about the future as if it is already done 
and in the past. Because when God declares it to be done, it will be done just as he has spoken. That's how we understand what Revelation 13 and 8 says, that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, he wasn't killed from the foundation of the world, but in the mind of God, in the plan of God, God foreordained it. He saw it in advance, and he spoke as if it were already done. And that's how Jesus, in John 17 and 5, this is our chapter tonight, could pray, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Amen. Now, I appreciate the writings of Dr. David Bernard, a general superintendent. I want to refer to the Oneness of God book. You should buy his books on doctrine, on everything. There are three things that we can conclude about the Son of God. We cannot use that term apart from the humanity of Christ, for the phrase always refers to the flesh or to the Spirit of God in flesh. So everybody good with that? The Son of God, the Son, refers to the flesh or the Spirit of God. Son is always used in reference to time and having a beginning and also having an ending. I won't go into this, but 1 Corinthians 15.26 speaks of the Son also himself subject unto him. There will be no need for a redemptive work or the role of Son. That's why there will be one that sits on the throne, not two. Amen. So it has a beginning, and the, everything, the kingdom will be del delivered up to God. As God, Jesus had all power, but as the Son, he had limited power. And Brother Calvin really covered this so well. Limited knowledge. The Son does not know the hour, the Father only. And so Jesus was both God and man. The biblical doctrine of the Son of God is an amazing biblical truth. And uh, the human and divine nature. Amen. God reveals himself. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we understand God by understanding that God came in flesh. And we got to know God through the ministry and life of Jesus Christ. Praise God. What an amazing truth. The doctrine of the Son does not teach that God loved us so much. You know, like if I'm the father and Ryan, Joel, or Justin, they're my sons. And I say, you know, son, I love those people so much. They're in a burning building. I love them so much, I want you to go and pull them out. I love them so much. I'm not going, but I'm going to send you. That's a great expression of love. But an oneness understanding of God is that God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, God in flesh, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him bodily. Amen? That God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. What an amazing truth that God loved us so much that he 
robed himself in flesh. He took upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19. To wit, to know that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. We have taken that mission in ourselves. So the one Jehovah God of the Old Testament, the great creator of the universe, humbled himself in the form of humans so humans could see him, understand him, communicate with him. A body, the Bible said, he has prepared himself. Hebrews 10 and 5, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. Oh, God provided a means of redemption, of buying us back from the curse of sin. Isaiah 59 and 16, he, God wondered there was no intercessor. So his own arm brought salvation. In other words, because no one was worthy. No, not one. There was no human being that was sinless, innocent, that was able. That's why we see the imagery in Revelation. There was no one worthy to open the book, right? But then there's this lamb that steps into this picture, and he is worthy to open the book. Praise God. So God himself brought salvation, and his righteousness had sustained him. Wow. What great truth. So it is in his role of son, the flesh, that he prays in John 17. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. John 17, 6, I have manifested your name. Verse 26, I have declared to them your name. The Father has both revealed himself to the world and he has also reconciled the world to himself through the Son, the man, Christ Jesus. And I want to just kind of differentiate this oneness of God and oneness with God because Jesus Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily so he had oneness with God, the spirit that was in him that did the works, that proved the miracles, that was God in him. But in his sonship, he also had alignment and agreement. And there are several ways, four, that I will, I will get to shortly about how we can have oneness to God. So according to this John 17, 21 and 22, that we should be one with one another. We should have unity with one another, and we should be in oneness with God. And this passage is so powerful speaking about this. But in no way should we think that all the fullness of God can dwell in us bodily. We could only wish. Amen? Now, the early believers, they had one heart and one soul and they prayed in one accord and all of that. They were bound together in one, but they were not the same as the union that Jesus Christ, the man, enjoyed with Almighty God, the Father. And, uh, but we can have that purpose living in us. 
when Jesus says, I, I want to, let's read John chapter 10, starting at verse 30. Media, thank you for catching up to me there. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Now, that does not mean in agreement. That doesn't mean we're unified in purpose. That means we're the same. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They were not killing him because he was in agreement with God. And Jesus answered, the many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? Are you stoning me for opening blinded eyes, raising the dead, casting out the devil? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we stone thee not. But for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest, make, you're making yourself God. So when Jesus says that all the, you know, when Jesus said that I and my Father are one, when he says here in John chapter 10, I and my Father are one, he is saying that I am God in flesh. Amen. In John 14 and 9, when Jesus says to him, have I been so long time with you, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how do you say, show us the Father? For all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily, right? So that, there's a differentiation between the oneness of God and being one with God. And as a man, Jesus Christ came into alignment with the Spirit. So let's talk about oneness with God. Jesus says, a man, and referring to his humanity, prayed that believers, that's you and me, by the way, would enjoy harmony, fellowship, unity with one another and with God. That's this prayer. He's not praying that we will be God in flesh. He's praying that God would be in us and that we would get on the same page with God and that we'd get on the same page with one another and that we would adopt the mission of Jesus Christ in the earth. John 17, 20, our text. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know. Notice the mission here. The world may know that you have sent me and have loved me as you have loved them. Now, you may notice, I'm saying this for all the teachers and preachers in the house, I never say in closing, because I don't want you to grab your purse, your wallet, your Bible, and start mentally heading to your car. So unless it's an accident, I will never say in closing. Secondly, I don't often say I have three points or four points, because then you know, and then you start thinking about that again. There are four things I want to talk about tonight. They're not co-equal, 
in length, so don't get your hopes up. But I am very mindful of time always. The first way we can be one with God is to be filled with his spirit. Amen? Jesus said, if I do not the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me. In John 3, 34 and 35, this is that verse that says that God does not give the Spirit by measure to Jesus Christ. He didn't have a dose of the Holy Ghost. It was all of God in him. Amen. Colossians 2 and 9. I've referred to this verse, but here it is in my notes. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now again, we're not capable of being God in flesh or containing all the fullness of the Father. But Jesus did say in Acts 1 and 4, I send the promise of the Father upon you. He said, you're going to be endued with power from on high. In John 14, he said, I'm going to pray the Father. He'll give you another comforter who's going to abide with you, even the spirit of truth. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Amen. In Romans chapter 8, the Bible said that when you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. But we are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. The first way to have oneness with God is to be filled with the Spirit of God. And if any man does not have the Spirit of God, he is none of his. Acts 1 and 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses. It is the Holy Ghost in John 16, 13 that guides us. Mark 13. Jesus said they're going to deliver you up. You're going to have to stand in places that are very uncomfortable and awkward for you. But don't worry about what you're going to say. Because in that moment, the Holy Ghost is going to tell you what to speak. We need to be filled with the Spirit. Amen. John 20, 22, Jesus spoke to his disciples. He breathed on them and said, receive you the Holy Ghost. Amen. The first way oneness of God can happen, oneness with God, is to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Paul wrote to the Ephesians to be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Amen. Jesus had the Spirit without measure. Don't worry that you're going to overdose on the Holy Ghost. I've seen some weird people, but I've never seen anybody that was too full of the genuine gift of the Holy Ghost. I've seen people that acted like they were, but I've never known anyone that was too spiritual genuinely. Amen. Secondly, we can be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. To align ourselves with the will of God. Hebrews 10 and 7, quoting an Old Testament psalm. Behold, I have come. This is looking back to the work of Jesus. In the volume of the book it is written in me, to do thy will, O God. Luke twenty two forty two 42, in the Garden of Gethsemane. I preached about this a few weeks ago. Not my will, but yours be done. You can be full of the Holy Ghost, but we still have the human will. Jesus had the spirit without measure, but he had a will that had to die, be submitted to the will of the Father. 
And every one of us have a will that has to be submitted to the will of God. Jesus knew this. He lived this. Oneness with God starts by being filled with the Spirit. It progresses to being submitted to his lordship. But then it also means to be unified with his body. John 17, 21, our text again. I want to highlight the emphasis of the, this unified part. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you. In the same way. Now here Jesus is not talking about one in number. He's talking about agreement. He's talking about on the same page. And he wants the church that he's going to give his blood for that is not yet in existence. He wants them to be one in that same magnificent way that he is in total alignment with the Father. That they also may be one in us that the world may believe. There's the missional side. Verse 22, in the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one, not in number, but in agreement on the same page. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. And notice the mission, and that the world may know. Amen. John 17, 26. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Romans 5 and 5 said that the love of God has been shed abroad or poured out in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Amen? It is love that binds us together, John 13, 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Now that is not a new commandment. It's taught of God. Everybody, this is old as the Bible, to love one another. But the new commandment is this next phrase. It is a new dimension of love. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. And how? As I have loved you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And the dimension of love that Jesus introduced in John 13 is a love that transcends human brotherly love. It is sacrificial love. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. I'm still in John 13, now verse 35. By this, this will segue into my next point eventually. Shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another? If you love one another like I loved you, if you show that level of love to one another that I have showed to you, shown to you, then the world will be in shock and awe at people that love like that. My sermon before the sermon, not planned, not planned to talk about this now. What about a Barnabas, man that embodied encouragement, leaving his place of ministry, go to Tarshish for to seek Saul, finds him, brings him back, plugs him into ministry. As I have loved you, 
When we have oneness with God, we will love one another. And when we love one another, it will be a powerful witness to the world, which does lead me to this next point that may or may not have a number. We need to be aligned to God's mission, aligned to his mission. John 17, 4, this is in this prayer. I have glorified you on the earth. I've already referred to these verses, but I want to go back and emphasize the missional side, the purpose. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. You cannot have oneness with God without being filled with the Spirit, without being submitted to His Lordship, without being unified with His body, the church. You cannot be, you cannot have oneness with God without adopting His mission. Again, verse 18, you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. John 17, 20, emphasizing this missional side. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do in greater works. And these shall you do, because I go to the Father. Amen? Verse 21 that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one with us. Here's the mission, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. That's pretty powerful. That they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. Here's the mission, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. In John 8, 24, Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In Luke 19 and 10, Jesus said, I am come to seek and to save that which is lost. In John chapter 3, Jesus spoke about the Son of Man being lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the famous verse, for God so loved the world. Jesus lived his life with a sense of urgency. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, John 9 and 4. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, look at this verse with me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God. God did this. Who hath reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And then that's the end of the story, right? No, that's not the end of the story. And hath given to us a mission, a purpose. To have oneness with God is to understand that God has 
given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, Paul wrote, we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is like a person we send to another country to represent ours. It's like God sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He was an ambassador to earth. Now we are his ambassadors as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Being one with God means being aligned with his mission. If you're able, please stand. Let me review these four points. Oneness with God. Oneness with God. It's not an unattainable goal. Not something that you cannot achieve. It was the purpose of Jesus coming to earth. It was his prayer of John 17. That we would be filled with his spirit. That we would be submitted to his lordship. That we would be unified with his body. That we would be aligned to his mission. There is great revelation in understanding the oneness of God. And there is great power in being in oneness with God. If you're able, would you join me in the altar? Just a few minutes, parents will go retrieve their children. But right now, we're going to take a few moments to pray. You need to go understand. Let's ask God that he would let us be his ambassadors into the world, that we would represent him just as Jesus Christ represented God and his purpose that we would represent God and his purpose in the earth. Lord Jesus, I pray. I pray, God, that you would let me be filled with your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would help me humble myself under the mighty hand of God, be submitted to your lordship, that I would live my life, Lord, not asserting my will, but submitting to yours. I pray, Lord, that you would help me follow your example. Humble myself and become obedient, Lord. I pray, Jesus, that you would help me. You know that Satan is a divider, an accuser. I pray, Lord God, that you would let me do my part in being a unifying force in the body of Christ. That we may be one, Lord God. I pray, Jesus, that you would let me be aligned. Help me be aligned to your mission, Lord, that wherever I go, that you would send me, Lord, as your ambassador to the world.